Ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, standing at a sleek 5'11", 245 pounds, the tumultuous tempest of technique, Thomas Lilly. And in the red corner, at a curvaceous 5'11", 315 pounds, the jovial juggernaut of judgment, John Cheryl Sheridan. A meeting of the masters of mastication. Turn your attention as they delve deep into all things lifting and more. This is Peak Speak. And we're back with exciting news. Yes, we are now professional. We have a sponsor for the show, which is awesome for us, but even more awesome for you. Indeed, because who doesn't love a sweet, sweet online shopping discount code? And in this case, it's an online shopping discount code that gets you delicious coffee delivered to your doorstep. From our good friends, Prism Coffee, who are four Canberra lads who I've known for a while. Uh, who've all worked in and around the specialty coffee industry for some time now and now uh, out on their own they've got a roaster they're roasting beans uh, and just generally kicking ass with delicious coffee so john how do the people get this amazing discount you speak of go to their website which is prismcoffee.com.au pick from the couple of different blends and some single origins that they've got you can get it ground you can get it in whole beans if you prefer to grind your own they've got all of the options uh, and then you use the code peakspeak in the discount bit of the shopping cart and uh you'll get a sneaky 10 percent off and it'll rock up on your doorstep in some amount of time i don't remember exactly what it is but i think they express post everything so hopefully quickly perfect Amazing. And well, that's it. Without further ado, here's, here's the episode. Yeah. Enjoy. Presented by Thomas Lilly and John Sarah and Baby Cry in the Background, not included. Recording in progress. I, so I now get a pop up notification for that as well. Damn. So I, get, I have to click a button to be able to continue to see your face. You know what you can do now? You can take your hand and you can just throttle the. Um, e person saying that thing because you got a tough stamp on your forearm and they'll see that and they'll be like you know what this guy doesn't mess around yeah well look i'm actually only a couple of days away from buying a harley and uh investing in a leather jacket and several multicolored patches because i feel like i've started that slide i may as well you know lean into it with all my might amazing life changed for me once i got my tough stamps did it in a like oh my god look at that guy and how tough he is with cartoon characters on his legs yeah exactly people are like <laughs> wow, I better avoid him he's gonna bash me for sure yeah look at the yeah. tattoos on that guy yeah look that's why I went with a skull based design because I was like man you know what you are not the sort of person that looks intimidating enough and you need know, to look a little bit more intimidating so you should probably just get this sick tattoo on your arm and uh, you know maybe shave your head and maybe get a face tap the thing i love about tattoo people is that they instantly become experts on tattoos and everything tattooing yeah uh and so like since i've gotten tattoos people with tattoos who i knew had tattoos always will now ask questions around tattooing and like i've probably got more hours now experience than some of these people and i'm like i don't know i just sat there in pain for four days like yeah yeah 
I don't know what, like, stroke they used or what ink they used or what technique. I don't give a... <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. I, so I had a discussion with my artist about the difference in the machines he was using because he had mm. one that was, like, noisy and one that was silent. And, uh, yeah, that was about the extent of my knowledge. One, oh. One's a rotary machine and one's a hammer machine, basically. Uh-huh. Yes. So he used, he used the noisy one for the thick lines and then the uh, rotary one for the, like, dot work and thin line stuff. Fascinating. Yeah, that was about as deep as I got into tattoo technology. <laughs> and it's probably about as deep as I'm ever going to go. I am already planning the next one, though. Um, uh, so we'll see. I'm planning my exit from ever doing it ever again. Yeah, well, you are a renowned wimp, Thomas. Yes, so. correct. And proud. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, as long as you lean into it and you understand mm. your own identity, you'll be fine. So we're locked down. Yes, you are. You have to wear masks. Yeah, for the first time since the pandemic began, uh, Canberra has been pretty fortunate to never have had a mask mandate. We now have a grand total of zero active cases and a a mask mandate, uh, which is an interesting choice. But hey, wearing a mask is pretty simple and I'm quite happy to do it. Not only I am that, sitting in my office yeah. with the door closed uh, without a mask on, though. So <laughs> part of part oh, of me is no. maybe spending more time locked in my office, not talking to people because I just can't be bothered putting the mask on. Yeah, yeah. No, what a what a travesty. Uh, yeah, interesting situation. I feel like my three day lockdown. I need to make a very extended, long Instagram post about how it's affected my mental health. You probably should, uh, anyway. and you should probably talk about how it's drastically affected your competition plans for the year as well. <laughs> Why are we such dicks? Um, I think it's just who we are as people. Exactly. All okay, right, what are we talking about today? Bang this out. Uh, ooh, innuendo, <laughs> I like it. Um, so I have, yesterday I was thinking on the concept of proximity to failure as a sort of principle you know a lot of people talk about the stimulus that we're actually driving from from a training standpoint is largely related to the intensity that you put into a set and how close you bring that particular exercise or that session or whatever to failure and the term failure i think is something that for a large percentage of people has a really negative connotation uh, because in a lot of areas it's considered to be, you know, failure is not a good thing. But I think something like powerlifting, the, the nature of powerlifting is that failure is intrinsic in it because if, it's, if you're not failing, you're probably not trying hard enough. Uh, but more specifically talking about the ideas around the differences in the type of failure that we're referring to uh, and how being able to identify the type of failure you're talking about and how that type of failure fits into that particular exercise choice, how that exercise choice fits into the overarching scheme of the program itself, and then being able to understand those pieces and how that can then be a really beneficial insight into your own training, whether you're someone who has a coach in it and is asking these questions of their coach so that you can be better informed or whether you write your own training and, 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 and sort of need a bit more refining of that idea that's yeah i think what we're going to talk about Mm. in a really long and rambly way (laughs) what do you mean the different types of failure for the people explain yeah so uh failure exists in a few different ways when it comes to what we do from a powerlifting standpoint i know we've talked about it uh, a bit in the past 
being that the idea of like true mechanical failure. So getting to a point where a muscle or group of muscles can no longer continue contracting in a way that allows you to continue the lift. Um, so that would be like, you know, doing a, a AMRAP set of leg press and getting to a point where you can't actually push the sled on the leg press anymore. Mm-hmm. But that sort of true mechanical failure is very rarely the the reason you miss a squat. Like people want to talk about, oh, you tip forward in the squat, your quads aren't strong enough. It's like, ah, like maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. Uh, and that, from my point of view, is more what I refer, refer to as like a technical failure versus a mechanic mechanical failure being the um the the complete stop whereas technical failure is a, a breakdown in your ability to hold that position and whether that position is you know in uh like a competition movement or in uh like yeah, a sort of developmental exercise where it's about very strictly constraining the t- the type of movement you're allowing in that exercise and then failure to hold that position anymore hmm so they're the sort of two distinctions I would make in, in that respect. And then it's about, uh, for me, how how that then fits into the system that I use for writing programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because, like you said, you know, that, that true mechanical failure, uh, not only is it uh, not very often reached, even if you know what that feels like, because it's sort of in a proper training paradigm, like if we're talking strength training or powerlifting or something like that, it's not it's not an outcome that we want that often so it does become kind of unfamiliar yes um and so like you imagine uh you add a hundred kilos to your squat over three years and in that time it would be um it would be normal for your leg press to increase for your leg extension to increase and because you don't you rarely if ever go to mechanical failure on those exercises you start to lose kind of a uh an idea of the kind of intensity that you can push towards before you approach that point and i think it does it does kind of um encourage some people to get a little bit soft with training yeah for sure Uh, it, it can really it can really diminish the kind of intensity that people bring to the table because they sort of start to start to associate you know an rpe or a a difficulty that they should be trying to achieve with a number rather than the true like feeling of intensity yes as in like they're just like i do six plates aside on leg press for this amount of reps and that's my three sets of 10 yeah or or whatever you know um rather than recognizing well depending where you are in your training cycles depending where your fatigue is depending what your relative strength is that's going to change and it's going to change on a micro level and a macro level um it doesn't mean you go to failure once a block or once a week to figure out where where you're at no uh, but it's it's interesting how quickly that can get away from us yeah well and I, that's where i think like a lot of things in in the powerlifting coaching realm uh, it can be one of two extremes it can be you've spent too long pushing areas of mechanical failure and then you're consequently suffering from a technique standpoint or from a you know total training load or fatigue standpoint those sort of things can also go the other way where suddenly you're a little too scared of ever going to failure or ever seeing like any technique breakdown which is the other thing that i think some people get caught up in the discussion around technical precision and those sort of things and that idea around you know technical failure or or skill failure if you will um 
that like avoiding that completely is also bad. I, I think like many things, there's a there's a midpoint that we've got to be aiming for. And the idea that um, you're like trying not to let perfect get in the way of good enough or the pursuit of perfection get in the way of good enough because it's really easy like you said to just end up being a bit of a wuss uh, and not training hard enough because you've got this idea in your head that like any technical breakdown is bad or you know ever approaching more than like an eight and a half rpe is going to put you into this fatigue hole like all of these things have a place in training and i think as a coach being able to articulate a system that allows you to understand why you're making the decisions you're making in exercise selection in volume and and sort of programming load and those sort of things how that fits into your broader understanding of training and then how it fits into that particular point in a training cycle like you said you know if you're a long way out from a meet maybe we are going to spend a bit more time pushing something like leg press to like very close to or at mechanical failure mm-hmm. on a semi-regular basis. Like you said, it's probably not going to be every week. It's probably not going to be once a block. It might, it might be more, it might be less, but that then if you have a system that articulates all of these aspects, then allows you to have a discussion with the athlete themselves about here's why I don't want you to go completely stupid on leg press six weeks out from a meet and here's why six months out from a meet you can make yourself crippled on the leg press and i'm totally okay with it Mm. and i think that then allows you to just make a more informed decision about pretty much everything you're doing Mm. it's interesting as well as to how these two concepts you know like mechanical versus technical um will uh, will vastly change the true load uh, yes. and not not so much the relative intensity. So, for example, yeah. like the way I look at training for the powerlifter is the further away that we get from the lift itself with a defined intention to impact the lift itself, the more technically perfect that thing needs to be. So, for yeah. example, if we're doing a squat and then we take the hip aspect out of a squat and put it into a tempo squat and then we take that aspect out and put it into like a leg press, the leg press needs to be fucking perfect if it's going to carry over back into the squat. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, and yeah. I'm talking again about this from a, like a technical perspective, right? And so when you take someone who has really, really, really poor hip control and put them on a leg press, because the leg press is such a great like output exercise, you can load that thing up even if your technique on a squat is completely shit because it's such a constrained and, and stable sort of uh, machine. Um, when you focus on the intent that you'd use in the squat, you can go to like technical failure very quickly with limited load. You can make it really, really, really fucking hard without loading it up that much. Yeah. And there's an ex- there's for for me when I'm looking at improving someone's movement and controlling positions, and I'd look at it as like strengthening positions rather than strengthening muscles. Yes. Uh, like we can we can work very close to. Um, uh, what would be relatively high intensities that aren't intense in the mechanical sense, so don't pre- yeah. produce quite as much fatigue. Uh, that's how I'd prefer my lifters to be training all the time. Like the training should be hard, but a lot of the difficulty, a lot of the straining, a lot of the pushing and in, in, in intensity is very relative to holding positions. Yeah. Yeah, and that for me is where I am increasingly using the language around the 
uh, like either an output or a developmental exercise. Like a mm. developmental exercise is one where th- the definition of failure that we're looking at is your inability to perform it to the technical standard that we're looking for. So maybe that is something like a leg press where the focus is on controlling your hips or maybe it's a tempo front squat or you know something completely different. All of these things can, and I think as a coach, having an understanding of the intent behind each exercise allows you to put the same exercise in at various points across a a macro training cycle and actually have very different outcomes for each of those exposures because of how your the intent behind each one so there Mm. might be a time where i'm using a let's say a front squat as a output exercise like it's an off-season thing we're just going to spend a ton of time pushing your front squat give your shoulders a break give you something different you know it's a bit of variation like that so there i'm less concerned about it technically being perfect but you know good enough is good enough and then just work hard and let's and let's push it hard over the course of a training block but then closer to a meet maybe we're going to use front squat again we're not going to change the tempo necessarily but we're going to flick it from being an output exercise to a developmental one where okay i'm far more interested in this being potentially like a lighter squat exposure for that week and in order to force you to be a little bit lighter and a little bit smarter about the choices you're making from a weight standpoint we're putting these constraints on failure being defined as your inability to hold like a near perfect position Mm. and that then becomes the rate limiter as opposed to just a like strength and output rate limiter and i think that for me, has has definitely improved my ability to communicate the intent behind everything to the lifters that I'm coaching, which I think ultimately is going to help them get better results because they understand the decisions I'm making at any at any point in the training cycle and why I might chastise you six weeks out from a comp for being stupid with your front squat as opposed to six months out from a comp pushing your front squat really hard and encouraging that and mm. that that mindset has to shift across a whole training cycle and we've talked about this from a like a training mindset standpoint is that you can't i don't think you can be successful and have the same mindset all the time mm-hmm. because if your mindset is this like just gotta fucking train hard all the time like maybe that works for a limited period of time but i think from a long-term standpoint not having a, a cyclical approach to your mindset as well as your weights and your reps and all of those sort of things can ultimately lead to a position where you're either just burnt out or hurt. Mm. You know, like on the mindset thing as well, um, it's one thing that I recently changed in the language in the in the coach development stuff. So um, when you look at training phases, like we, we look at the typical labels that we put on training phases in strength training, uh, which is like across a spectrum according to percentages or relative intensities, like yep. conditioning, hypertrophy, strength, peaking you know, like the the main training phases. And one thing I've been like, I guess, externally observant of is the way that people will change their approach to training if they think they're doing a hypertrophy block or they think they're doing a strength block um, or they are doing a, a block that on the piece of paper has been labeled as this thing, even if the true goal doesn't involve that. Yeah. Like as in the true goal of the hypertrophy block might not necessarily, might not necessarily be hypertrophy. Yeah. Uh, or the goal of the strength block might be strength and squat bench deadlift, but not necessarily in your leg press. Yeah. You know, th- those exercises might be used to 
bolster the the technique on those other movements and it, i've put a great deal of thought into relabeling these blocks uh, so people focus on what they think they're focusing on so like instead of calling it hypertrophy now i call it development instead of calling it uh i split strength uh into two phases because there's like this crossover with hypertrophy and then high-end strength so that crossover i call technique and the high-end i call transition and like yeah the label doesn't mean anything but it changes the person's approach because they just read the label and then they don't ascribe any value um by that label to the accessories they then just say, okay, what am I doing this for? I articulate to them and they can think about doing that in, in the way described. It sounds so fucking basic, but like if you're, if you're going into a block and you think you're doing your whatever exercise for the purpose of hypertrophy, you're going to change the way you perform it or you're going to shoot for arbitrary numbers or goals that might not necessarily reflect what that exercise is there for. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the splitting of strength into two. That's a really good idea that i hadn't considered before but i think really works very well certainly you know would would transition nicely into the way i think about training as well i moved away from using the term hypertrophy a long time ago and use work capacity instead mm. um for exactly the reasons you're talking about because if if the goal was pure hypertrophy actually that block would look different to what it does the goals build capacity for the strength-based work to come so i've mm. used work capacity strength and peaking for some time but i really like that idea of uh splitting strength into two and the idea of like developmental and transition is is really cool i think mm. that it's like you said it's it seems so simple and basic but increasingly especially as i'm you know potentially a little bit behind you in terms of uh you've had all this mentorship stuff for a long time i'm in the process of developing that sort of stuff for myself and my own business and in doing that it's made me realize how important the language and the the language we use to define the ideas that we're trying to communicate is because so many of these words like you said already have this like predisposition to a particular idea or a a particular type of training or or an intent behind it and i think if you can as a coach if you can very articulately uh, express the intent behind each block and and that that all fits into the system that you're using i think you're going to be far more effective from you know from day one i don't think you can jump into it and define it from day one though that's yeah. the problem like i think you actually probably have to go through a lot of this development of your own ideas and and your own programming and, and realize that that's actually the case mm. yeah but I mean, like creating a framework where you can now teach it is only going to make everything you do so much better because everything that you then go to teach, you're going to scrutinize and be like, wait, do I actually believe this? Is this yeah. actually the right language? Is this actually scientific? Does this actually make sense? And you're going to yeah. find a whole lot of holes in your own methodology that you're going to be like, I can fix this. Yeah, man. I And I like it is both an incredibly confronting and incredibly rewarding uh, process because there are times where I'm like, I don't know anything what the fuck am i doing like i don't understand why i'm even here i can't believe these idiots continue to pay me i have so little idea what the fuck and then there are other days where i walk away and i'm like fuck yeah like i genuinely know what i'm doing and i feel like an accomplished person because i've actually made progress in in just like how i think about things and mm. how i define concepts and those sort of things like nothing necessarily in my programming style has changed but i'm just way better at articulating that message mm. and i think ultimately 
your ability as a coach to articulate the thoughts that you're having will in, in a manner that is understandable to the lay person mm-hmm. i think the more effective you're going to be right yeah for sure and you're just going to hear better questions it's going to yeah. make you think harder it's it's just all good yeah it's like but like i said a little bit confronting <laughs> very 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 what were we talking about failure something to do with failure yeah failure and how it how it fits into that process that flowed nicely into the rest of that conversation there mm. um what do you feel like are things that people get wrong when it comes to things like using rpe as a judge of a failure point right like if a 10 rpe's an all-out max 11's failure like how do you think people misinterpret that or what do you see as sort of the the mistakes that people make most often uh i think uh you know learning things according to other people's experience rather than their own experience of rating their own training as in um like i think of someone who's very experienced in lifting uh versus not very experienced in in rpe like they're experienced in lifting not very experienced in rpe a lot of people match rpe to rir like rpe night is one rep in the tank and that you know that's a a pretty decent way of rating it when you're relatively inexperienced whereas as you get more and more experience the gap uh, between like what you can do for reps and what you can do for singles just turns into this chasm it just gets wider and wider and wider because you get better at expressing your strength for your chosen sport which is doing one rep Um, and so like my experience of working with people who are highly experienced in lifting but maybe inexperienced in rating their training when it comes to things like peaking i incorporate rpes into their sessions and um uh, initially with some people it would be you know a learning curve for them working out what that number is just like anyone using it for the first time but it's interesting to see the difference in terms of like how many reps are left according to rpe and rir getting kind of confused i think that's a big mistake that more experienced lifters make um what about you yeah i've i've certainly seen that as a mistake for the more experienced like this i guess stronger is probably a better word because if you were more experienced you'd probably just understand this more inherently anyway yeah um but i think the the way i use the idea behind rpe changes a little bit with singles and doubles like the really heavy stuff It, it, it is more about like you know a nine's probably actually more like a nine and a half and like maybe we need a 9.25 and a 9.75 <laughs> and a like you know maybe it needs a little bit more uh gradation at, at that higher end mm. um the other thing i see that that often happens is people like misinterpreting what like and i think this probably comes from a lack of experience but like what actual failure fucking feels like mm. like the, if you have done a set and you let's let's call it five let's say you did five and you've given it an eight rpe which like in the way i described is like yeah you probably could have done two more reps and the fifth rep moves at the same speed as the first one it wasn't a fucking eight (laughs) like there's just no way that's the case right because if it is then there's a pretty good chance having not seen any of that slowdown in in the speed you know any minor minor technical breakdown if you haven't seen any of that across the set it's probably not as hard as you think mm. and that's the thing that gets me a lot of like i've had people here while like while i'm watching i'm like all right cool what was that from an rpe standpoint like oh yeah definitely like eight and a half nine i'm like all right cool let's watch this video back and it's just like bang 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 mm. bang bang you like, oh okay cool i could have done heaps more like yeah i think that 
that's where having an objective third party like a video is really useful. And that's sort of the way I teach people to use a combination of RPE and the video. Like it's important not to get too caught up in needing the video, but instead use it as just another data point. Because I know you've talked a lot about the idea that like your RPE exists whether you recognize it or not, right? Mm. That's where I think having that as a data point and then having something like the video so you can see like, did it actually slow down? Did it break down from a technique standpoint? Or did it just feel hard by the end but still looked really good? Yeah, and I think for a, I was just going to say, I think for a lot of people who are not particularly experienced uh, in pushing really hard then they tend to undershoot that RPA pretty hard. Yeah, I don't think this is unique to experience level, but it's always interesting to observe the difference in people's mental RPE, you know, like people <laughs> people whose body, uh, you know, people who are willing to overlook how their brain feels, as in like their brain saying, okay, you've had enough, and just trust in what their body can do and just keep pushing and pushing and pushing versus people who are like, this is hard, this is difficult and the notion is if it's hard you just give up so you just yeah. stop um it would be really funny really curious to do an experiment where you give people like three sets of five and split them up into like people who do uh the third set to an rpe say nine or people who do the third set as like um a one rir you know like people yeah. looking for a number to rate the thing or people going towards failure and looking for failure and stopping just before that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That that would be interesting because I think, like you said, it would be or a even lot an, of... an AMRAP on the last one and see, yeah. like, if the RP9 is six reps and then the AMRAP is 12. Yeah. You know? and so your nine was actually, like, 11. So that's, that's one of those things that that idea of an AMRAP set, I think, brings some noise into the problem in a way that as long as you're aware of is, is probably not that much of a problem, but I don't know about you. If I'm going to do an AMRAP set, I'm probably going to be slightly more amped up for it than I oh, would be like, yeah. whether I consciously choose to fucking put tool on the radio and half ammonia or, uh, or whether I'm just like, fuck yeah, all right, let's fucking push this and see how it goes. Regardless of that, I'm going to be more hyped up than I was for the set before it. And so then that that noise in the system makes actually using that as a guide for what your RPE actually was kind of complicated. Because if you go in and go, okay, well, I did that set of five completely relaxed. It was my second set of five. It was a nine RPE. Probably could have done one more good one. Mm. It was hard, but, you know, there was definitely a rep in the tank. All right, cool. Well, now you go into that third set and you're like, fuck yeah, let's do this. You get 12, like you said. Well, then... Clearly, your nine's different, but then those two scenarios are actually two different scenarios, right? Mm. And that that subjective intent and that psychological arousal that occurs in some cases, whether you like it or not, it also plays a role. Yeah, sure. You know, and I, I think all of these factors are, they're not, uh, you know, problems. I, I don't think they are things to be too concerned about in trying to like perfect your system or manage all of the variables or anything like that but instead i think it's important that you're just aware of the differences in these subjective ratings and how these things can influence the results 
for sure. Well, like you, you put it perfectly. You said it's noise, you know, like it's, yeah. it, that's exactly what it is. Cause it, it raises questions. It's like, well, if I can, if I can switch on like that, what if I can bring that kind of grit and intensity to every set of every session? Couldn't I just go heavier and harder? And if I can go heavier and harder, can I get stronger? Yeah. And understanding that, like that, that concept of arousal is something that we should also periodize. You know? Yeah. Like bringing it to every set of every session is probably just going to burn you out real quick. Yeah. Yeah, powerlifting becomes a really long and monotonous sport when all you do four days a week is half ammonia, slam, 400 milligrams of caffeine at 5.30 in the afternoon <laughs> and bash your head against barbells for months at a time. It, like, it'll, it's a quick road to burnout from there. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. And, like, I, I speak from experience. I've Like, I've done it. I've watched people do it. It's just not sustainable. Mm. And I think, like you said, being able to just recognize the influence that all of these factors have on something like your subjective rating of how hard things were mm. is important to help you just understand how you're actually responding to things and the intent that you're putting into it. And, uh, and yeah. It's kind of a frustrating conversation because I, like, I want to end with something practical and be like, so to balance you know this arousal <laughs> yeah. versus non-arousal here's what you do but really it's just an experience thing like you're yeah. gonna come into a session and do your second set of five and be like fuck that was hard because like i need to switch on and then you switch yeah. on for your third and it's all good um it's it's like you learn how to grade the level of intensity or arousal that you need to bring to sets and sessions based on how you feel coming into the session how the warm-ups are going how the first set goes like you learn to turn it up and down accordingly um, I guess the big take-home message is like the prescribed work, uh, the relative intensity, the relative stimulus that you should be receiving for every session is the goal. Yes. Uh, and like just just bring the arousal required to hit that. Yeah. And I think understand uh, the more you can seek as, a, as an athlete, the more you can seek to understand. And as a coach, the more articulate you can be in expressing your ideas behind distinct phases of training and how it all fits together i think the more both sides of that equation get better at it and understanding it the more effective the program's going to be in the long run right the exactly. beauty of uh, a lot of strength stuff is you know we like to nuance the shit out of all of these things but ultimately like if you just fucking work hard enough for a long enough time you'll probably get pretty strong yeah and so it's not that all of this should be a discussion about how to like make the perfect program but for me, like, this is the shit I enjoy talking about, right? These are the, mm. the, the ideas that I enjoy mulling over because it's about improving my understanding of what we're trying to do. Mm. And I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a fun conversation to have. And if you don't know what you're doing and all you know is one way, like fucking meathead your way into headbutting barbells and huffing ammonia, um, maybe look at other ways. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe if you've never half ammonia and headbutted a barbell, you should give it a go. Exactly. Like maybe maybe you'll find something you're into. <laughs> Who knows? Awesome. Well, that's a good place to end by. I think so. Bye. Bye. <laughs>